Shall we just um, pray quickly for Jesus? Lord, um, we, we thank you again for being able to, to be in your presence, Lord, and in your family. And Lord, help us to have ears to hear and Lord, hearts open to, to hear what you would speak to us this morning. Um, Lord, we just thank you for the privilege of being able to listen to your, one of your servants who so relies on you, Lord, and teaches so many about your word. Lord, help us to, to do likewise, Lord, to change our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When most of us come to the book of Genesis, I think it's probably true to say that we think of Genesis as the book of beginnings and primarily a book that was given to us to tell us how the world began. The book of Genesis divides neatly into two parts. It did yesterday. We're away. We're almost away. There we are. Now we're away. This is why the Lord came long before IT. Otherwise the message would never have gotten out. Genesis divides into two parts, chapters 1 to 11 and chapters 12 through 50. And uh, the central feature of the book of Genesis is the character of Abraham. Now, we all know that God is primarily the central character of all of Scripture. But when you come to take the book of Genesis and have a good look at it, you find that the focal point of the book is actually about Abraham. So the first 11 chapters are leading up to Abraham, but then from chapters 12 through 50, by far the greatest part of the book focuses on Abraham and his descendants. And so that makes chapter 15 a very, very significant chapter in the book of Genesis. We might say that the first 11 chapters tell us how Abraham was descending, while the rest of the book tells us about his descendants. Or you could put it this way. Chapters 1 to 11 are about the human race, but by chapter 12 through 50, we're talking about the Hebrew race out of all of the races of the world. When we uh, look at these first 11 chapters of Genesis, they are by no means an insignificant introduction to the character and the role of Abraham in human history. The first 11 chapters describe for us the world's hopeless predicament. Now, it begins pretty well with creation, but by the time you're in chapter 3, you're into the fall. The story from then through chapter 11 is a story of abject misery as the human race plunges into virtually a total spiritual blackout. Then God reaches into the darkness and calls this one man to begin a new nation with a special purpose. In fact, I love to think of Israel as the special people in a special place with a special purpose. And when it comes to 
The role of Abraham and his descendants, uh, we find that they are given a redemptive mission. And that begins in chapter 12 and it works its way all through the book of Genesis and in fact, the whole of scripture. So in the first 11 chapters, we're told why Israel began, why the nation actually exists. In the second part of the book, we talk about how Israel began and their right to exist as a nation. So in the first half of Genesis, we're talking about the creation of the world, the creation of man, the fall of man. These are huge subjects. When you think of it, the creation of the world is jammed into one chapter. Out of the 50 chapters, something as significant and ginormous as the creation of the heavens and the earth is simply contained in one chapter. Then in chapter 2, you have the story of the creation of man. Only one chapter. Then you have in chapter 3, the fall, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and plunged the world into spiritual ruin. One chapter. And then following those three critical chapters, are stories of misery piled one upon the other to show just how much sin has damaged the wonderful world that God had made. And so you have the story of Cain and Abel, and before we are even outside the first family on the human race, we have not only anger and hatred and bitterness, but we have uh, fratricide and murder. Then we have the story of Lamech, which is no insignificant story. It's a story of violence, it's a story of murder, and it's a story of, of tragedy as we see what sin is doing in people's lives. Then we come to the flood, for the wickedness of man had come before God, and God was... Uh, overwhelmed with the sinfulness of the planet. And in an act of gigantic ablution, he washes the planet clean, but the problem does not disappear because the problem is not in the planet itself. The problem is in the heart of man. And even the best of men are contaminated by sin, as we shall find when Noah and his three sons populate the earth again. The story moves from the flood to the Tower of Babel, which in the Old Testament, by the way, is a very significant story and a very relevant one for us in today's world. For at the Tower of Babel, uh, humanity, which had been moving en masse, raises itself up against God. Until then, humanity had been sinning against God, but at Babel they decide to replace God, to pension him off, to get rid of him, and to take control of the planet themselves. And according to Romans chapter 1, which I understand to be a theological commentary 
on the events of Babel, mankind rejects God and creates his own images and his own religions, and that's where religion began. Until then, the only religion on the planet was the worship of Yahweh. After Babel, we have false religion created. And God uh, separates the people off through the confusion of language, and they begin different people groups and eventually different nations with different cultures and different religions. Uh, into this terrible darkness, God reaches down to Mesopotamia, and he calls one man whose family were a bunch of moon worshippers, according to Joshua chapter 24, and he calls Abraham to go by faith to a land that he would show him, and there he will make of him a great nation, and through him he will bless all the families of the earth. So Abraham becomes the critical figure. In the second half of the book of Genesis, it's all about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are the recipients of the covenant that God makes with Abraham here in chapter 15. And then you have the wonderful story of Joseph. And this story of Joseph is a fantastic story. I know that for most of us, we read the story of Joseph to try and get morals for daily life. But the reason the story of Joseph is plugged in at the end of Genesis, following the covenant being given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is to show just how God um, determinedly but graciously works out the covenant he made with Abraham to make of him a great nation through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. Well, there's the book of Genesis open before you. That's what the comment uh, Genesis is striving to make to the Christian world. When we come to chapter 12, you have the call of Abraham and the promise of God that he would make of him a great nation, that he would bless him, and that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And the promise that God gave in chapter 12 is then taken up a notch and put into the form of a covenant to guarantee the fulfillment of that which God had promised. When we come to the covenant with Abraham, uh, I want us to notice five things. And then we shall talk for a moment about the relevance of this covenant to you and I. If you have your Bibles, we're in chapter 15, and we're reading at verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. 
Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will take possession of it? So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. I've seen that happen in churches uh, between 11 and 12. Make sure it doesn't happen here. Verse 13, then the Lord said to him, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sins of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, to your descendants, I give you this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Now, five things for us to notice from the reading of Scripture about this covenant that God made with Abram. The first thing I want us to notice are the terms of the covenant. The terms of the covenant. Now, you will notice from chapter 12 and then through chapter 15, God has promised that he would give personal blessing to Abraham. Out of 14 provisions in the Abrahamic covenant, and there are 14 things God has promised Abraham, they can be characterized in four parts. The first is he's going to give him personal blessing. That is, he's going to give him a family. He's going to give him a fortune. He's going to make his name great. And of course, now the three great monotheistic religions of the world, um, Islam and, and uh, uh, Judaism and Christianity, all find their roots in this person, Abraham. But God promised he would make his name great and that he would bless him. Aside from the personal blessings given to Abraham, there are territorial blessings. And God said, I'm going to give you this land. We call it the land of Canaan. And uh, this land is a contentious place right at the very moment. And every night you turn on your TV, your attention will be focused to the trouble in the Middle East. And it's all over the fact of the uh, land of Israel and the Jews' right to have that land and the uh, need for a Palestinian state and so on and so on. Well... Here we come back to Genesis chapter 15, and we find that God has covenanted to Abraham a peace 
of land from the great from the river Euphrates to the great river and it's described for us in Genesis chapter 15 this land is important and it becomes the subject of most of the old testament to the point where one theologian has said the land of Israel is the dominant theological motif of the whole of the Old Testament. So important is the land. Now you and I would wonder why. Because the land of Israel is a tiny piece of real estate that would fit between Walkworth and Cape Reinga, smaller than the North Island. No wonder Jesus could walk from one end of it to the other in three years. Not impossible. It's a tiny little piece of land. Few countries would be smaller than the land of Israel, and yet this land becomes a focal point in the Abrahamic covenant. Now we would ask ourselves, why? Well, in the ancient world, it was the land bridge between the three major continents of the ancient world. You could not go from Asia or Europe down to Africa without going through the land of Israel. And the spice traders of Africa could not reach the other continents to trade without going through the nation of Israel. And that's why uh, for century after century, uh, this land has been uh, a contentious place because the powers of the world have wanted to get their hands on this land simply because it is strategically placed. Uh, in Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 5, we read these words, which the Sovereign Lord said, This is Jerusalem, which I have set in the center of the nations with the countries all around her. The reason God chose that piece of real estate for Israel is because of its location. It was going to be a place of incredible influence. And as the trading caravans passed through up and down, the religion of Israel would be seen and understood by all of the other nations as they passed through. And as the traders went back to their home nation, they would take news of what was going on in the land of Israel. And especially when the tabernacle was there and when the temple was there and they passed by and saw all the celebrations and the feasts and the sacrifices and the Shekinah glory shining brightly unaided uh, in the tabernacle first and then in the temple. My, these people would go home and tell of the wonders of this nation of Israel. And that's the reason God chose this piece of real estate, because it was uh, the most influential place on the planet. I want us to notice, too, that when we talk about Canaan in the Old Testament, we're talking about a literal geographical, geopolitical location. We are not talking about heaven. And when you get into Genesis chapter 13, verse 15, God said to Abraham, now I've given you this land and I want you to walk through the length and the breadth of it for I'm giving it to you and to your descendants forever. So Abraham walked through the length and the breadth of Canaan. He never walked through heaven. So when we think of Canaan, let's think of a geopolitical 
location on the earth. Now we might say, why in the world would God be interested in a little piece of real estate in the Middle East? Isn't he more concerned about the great spiritual issues of life? Why would he covenant this land with all of the trouble it's going to bring to Abraham? Well, the answer, of course, is that God made this planet. The fullness of the earth belongs to the Lord, Psalm 24.1. And where God's glory was dishonored in the Garden of Eden is uh, going to be honored again on planet earth. So in other words, God has not given up purposes for this planet. He has a purpose and his glory will be established on the earth. In Isaiah's vision of that coming day when God's glory uh, would be established, he said his glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Uh, so the earth is yet to see God's name established and glorified on the planet. And one of the ways he's going to do that is through the nation of Israel and this little piece of land. So it's not an incidental part of the covenant. Then, of course, he said to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, a special people in a special place with a special purpose. The only nation on the face of this planet that the Creator has called with a religious purpose. In a day of relativism, when our young people are going off to university and postmodernism is telling us there is no absolute and all things are relative and there is no one true religion, all religions are valid, we need to understand the book of Genesis. And it's telling us this that God has made of Israel a great nation because she is a priestly nation, bringing the truth of the Creator to all of the nations of the world. The book of Genesis is very, very clear. There is one world and one God. And that God is the God for the whole world. His name is not Allah. His name is not Krishna. His name is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in a world of relativism, this is a very, very important truth for us to lay hold of. We're not to be intimidated by the rise of alternative cultures and religions. We are to lay hold intelligently of Christian revelation and say to ourselves, I can have no other faith. I am not a Muslim and I am not a Hindu and I am not any other of the world's multiple religions. I am a Christian, and my God is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the creator of the heavens and the earth. The Davidic covenant then extends uh, all of the national significance that God had promised to Israel. But you will notice in chapter 12, God said to Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth would be blessed. So these are the terms of the covenant. God was giving to Abraham personal blessings. He was giving him territorial blessings. He was giving him national blessings. And he was giving him universal blessing to the whole world. I want us to now go and look at the recipients of this covenant. And you will find in chapter 15 that it's Abraham God made the covenant with. 
But when you get into chapter 13, he says, I'm giving you the land to you and to your descendants. So when you get into chapter 26, the covenant is given to Isaac. When you get into chapter 28, the covenant is given to uh, Jacob and is passed on down to the descendants of Israel. Now, when we start talking about Abraham's children in the Bible, we get a bit confused. The Bible speaks three ways about the descendants of Abraham. Some are natural, not spiritual. These are Jews who have no faith in God. But they're Jews. They're physical descendants of Abraham. Then the Bible talks about Jews that are connected to the God of Abraham. They're physical Jews, but they are spiritual Jews. And they are the believing remnant out of the nation of Israel. And then the Bible talks about the spiritual children of Israel, of uh, Abraham, who are not physical Jews at all. And according to the book of Galatians, you and I are the spiritual children of Israel. But I want us to notice that the covenant God made, promising a great nation, promising the nation this land in perpetuity, and promising a nation with a religious purpose that would have universal blessing is not given to us. It was given to Abraham and to his descendants, and namely the spiritual Jews who followed the faith of Father Abraham. Well, the nature of the covenant becomes very important. There are two types of covenants the Old Testament talks about. One is a bilateral covenant, where two people would make a mutual agreement and come to uh, a decision. Or there was a unilateral covenant that was made by one person and imposed it upon the other. When you come to the Abrahamic covenant, this is not a deal between Abraham and God. This is a deal made by God alone. And for that reason, the scripture records that as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness passed over him. And the reason for that is uh, God didn't want him to be an equal partner in this covenant. God alone was establishing the covenant. And it was going to be dependent on God alone and not Abraham or any of his descendants to come to fulfillment. This is absolutely crucial. It does not depend on Abraham's performance or obedience. He's put to sleep. You'll remember that when God was going to create Eve, he put Adam to sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over Adam. Well, here it is again with Abraham. You're not having any part in this, Abraham. This is my covenant, which I am granting and gifting to you. Well, I want us to think for a moment about the strength of the covenant, and it's important. In the Old Testament, you could have a salt covenant, and when two people were coming to an agreement, uh, they would exchange salt from their pouches. Now, back in the Middle East, not like today, you didn't have a tap in every house, you didn't have a tap on every corner, and one of the things that was very important was to make sure you drank enough water to keep yourself hydrated in the Middle East. And the way you did that for both yourself and your animals was you had a little pouch with some salt in it. 
And from time to time, as you herded the flock, you would feed them some salt, and that would make them thirsty, and they would go drink. And you'd take some salt yourself instead of ex, uh, expiring, and, and you would go and, and uh, drink some water. Well, one of the ways they would come to an agreement is they would cut a deal. Instead of shaking hands, one guy would take some of the salt out of his pouch and put it in the other fellow's pouch, who would then shake it around, and then he would take his salt and put it in your salt pouch, and you would shake it around. And the idea was that the deal you had agreed on would last until you could separate out those grains of salt in each other's pouch, which, of course, would be impossible. But it's a salt covenant, and you read of it in those passages of Scripture. Then you have a shoe covenant, and you'll remember Boaz bought all the land of Naomi, and... Uh, as a sign of the transaction, he took off his sandal. Now, when you're reading Ruth 8, it says Boaz bought the land and removed his sandal. And you say, why in the world would a man remove his sandal? Well, what they did is, when he bought the land, he would take his sandal and give it to Naomi. She would take her sandal, give it to Boaz. And while you possessed each other's sandal, the deal stood. It was a way of making a covenant or an agreement. Then, of course, there was the hand covenant, which you could make by either shaking hands or raising your hand. But out of all of these different kinds of covenant, the most significant was the blood covenant. And that's what you have here with Abraham. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you this land to you and your descendants forever. I'm going to make of you a great nation on this earth, and through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, Abraham, go and get me a heifer, a ram, a goat. Go and get me all of these animals that are listed here in Genesis 15. And they would take those animals and slaughter them and cut them in half and lay them side by side. And then, if it was a bilateral agreement, if the two people were making a blood agreement, they would stand before these animals, recite the terms of agreement, and then they would walk together between the slain pieces of the animal, saying, if either of us break our promise, we will end up like these animals. This is a blood covenant. This is a covenant unto death. Now, when God gave Abraham the land and when God said he was going to make a great nation out of Israel, he didn't have Abraham part of the deal. He put Abraham to sleep and then as the sun was setting, a flaming torch, the Shekinah glory, came and alone walked through the pieces of the slain animal. Now, that might not seem significant to you, but here's the deal. What God is saying is, Abraham, if I don't honor this promise to you, I will go out of existence just like these animals. I will make of you a great nation, or I will go out of existence. I will bless the world through you, or I will go out of existence. This land is yours forever, or I will go out of existence. So it is an incredibly strong form of covenant that will last forever. All the land you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. Now let's just take a moment. 
Bessie Brooks and Tommy Snooks went to church one Sunday. Said Bessie Brooks to Tommy Snooks, tomorrow will be Monday. Not the greatest poem in the world, but what it's really saying is, what relevance is there from Sunday to Monday? Now, we've talked about the Abrahamic covenant. You say, that's great, but where's the relevance to me? Well, it's incredibly relevant. Here's the first piece of relevance. God, when he makes a blood covenant, will never break it. His promise is as good as his word, but a blood covenant is an unbreakable, unmodifiable covenant. Now, when it comes to the new covenant, which is a covenant made in Messiah's blood for the forgiveness of sins, that's a deal that can never be broken. When God says, I will remove their sin and iniquity and remember it against them no more, he means it. Here's another piece of relevance. Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Three years ago, I felt a little strange driving the car and I pulled over to the side of the road and I got out and... That was the end of me. I went down to the pavement uh, in a most uh, ungracious way. And, uh, and then when I tried to stand up, I lost consciousness and collapsed completely and had suffered a major heart attack. From that point on, in the back of the ambulance, my heart stopped eight times. And I knew that I was that far from death. I can remember lying in the back of the ambulance, coming in and out of consciousness, thinking, Lord, if this is it, I don't want to open my eyes and see Buddha in the morning. I've put all my eggs in your basket. I have placed my faith in a Jewish Messiah. Am I right or am I wrong? Well, the answer is through the Jewish people and through the Jewish Messiah, all the families of the earth will find salvation for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It is in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, the Jewish Messiah. So I rest as a Gentile for my faith in the Abrahamic covenant. Just like the Canaanite woman in Matthew chapter 15, she came to be he get healing for her daughter. And the Lord said to her, how can I possibly give that which is holy to the dogs? Now, what a thing to say to a Canaanite woman. How can I give that which is holy to the dogs? And then the Canaanite woman said, Yes, Master, Rabbi, but even the dogs get the crumbs from the Master's table. And Messiah turned to her and said, 
I have not seen such great faith even in Israel. Now, when you think about it, you say, what great faith did she have? Well, that woman came to Messiah not just because he was a miracle worker, but she came knowing that as a Gentile, she had a right to be blessed through the Jewish Messiah. Even the dogs get the crumbs from the master's table. And I'm coming to you on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant that through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that includes me. And Messiah said, I haven't seen such great faith in Israel. Let me ask you this question. Why are you a Christian? Well, the answer has to be, doesn't it? You're a Christian because of the Abrahamic covenant. That salvation is of the Jews. And the reason we worship Jesus as Gentiles is because God has no other way of blessing the peoples of the earth. Now, our Father, we do thank you for this passage of Scripture, and we pray that as we meditate upon it and think it over, your Spirit will burn its truths deep into our hearts. We want to thank you that you're a covenant-keeping God, that you do not break your promises, that you are true to your word, and that all of history is showing us, even to the present moment, that this covenant is real because you are real. And the reason that little nation came out of non-existence into existence again is simply because you are real and you've made a promise that you will never break. We want to pause in your presence this morning and acknowledge that you are the living God. You are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and because of that, you're our God. And besides you, there is no other. And we bring to you our morning praise and worship in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.